Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. The UN Refugee Agency estimates that last year, 80 million people were forcibly displaced worldwide. While most remain within their own countries, 23.6 million of them are refugees. In his latest book, The Wealth of Refugees, How Displaced People Can Build Economies, Alexander Betts, Professor of Forced Migration and International Affairs, Associate Head of the Social Science Division at Oxford University, and William Golding, Senior Fellow in Politics at Oxford's Brasenos College, offers a better way to respond to the global refugee crisis by highlighting the value of the contributions that refugees can make in host countries. It's published by Oxford University Press and brings Professor Betts to our show now. Welcome. Thank you, Leonard. I'm really delighted to join you for the show. Now, now, migration has always been a part of of animal behavior, not just humans, throughout the history of Earth. Is there anything unique about what we're seeing these days? Well, I think the scale of human migration has grown significantly. In about the 1970s, there were about 70 million people who crossed an international border and remained for for more than about two years at a time. Today, that's around 240 million people who cross an international Mm -hmm. border as as migrants. Now, of course, it's right to say, well, is that a dramatic increase in the proportion of the world's population who are migrating? Well, actually, not necessarily a huge spike because relative to the size of the global population, it's actually a relatively low level increase. But what we are seeing today is a massive increase in the levels of human displacement. People who are forced from their homes as a result of conflict, as a result of authoritarian regimes. We've obviously seen large peaks in that in the past, in the First World War, in the Second World War, but not since the Second World War have we seen as many people forced to flee their homes, whether as what are called internally displaced people, people who have to leave their communities but don't cross a border, or as refugees forced to flee. We see, I think, unprecedented levels of that kind of displacement as a result of what are broadly defined as failed and fragile states around the world. The other dynamic that we see that's really changing is the nature of those movements. More of them are dispersal around the world. So for a long time, refugee movements were within regions or through organized resettlement. For instance, during the Cold War, we saw significant movements from East to West, people voting with their feet, fleeing communism to Western Europe or being relocated to the US. Over really the last 20 or 30 years, we've seen increases in people moving uh, across continents, whether it's from Africa to Europe or from Latin America northwards to the US-Mexican border. How has the pandemic affected the number of refugees? Um, I'm assuming other factors are war, as you mentioned, but also climate change. Yeah, so it's it's very early to say. Um, These are the two factors in the background that could really exacerbate levels of displacement. So the World Bank produced a report before COVID-19 suggesting that as a result of climate change, the number of people um, displaced could be as many as 143 million by the year 2050. Now, that's just an estimate, and most of them would be displaced within their own country as internally displaced people. But it suggests that as the effects of climate change take hold, it can exacerbate other drivers of displacement, whether it be food insecurity, water insecurity, or weak governance. 
And we've started to see that, for instance, in the Northern Triangle. If we take the example of Guatemala, the Western Highlands region is an area that suffered from significant crop failure. And alongside um, crop failure driven by climate change, interacting with weak governance, gang violence, um, chronic socioeconomic deprivation, that's forcing more and more people to leave. Now, with COVID-19, it's quite early to say, because of course the immediate effect of COVID-19 was for governments to close their borders, to actually limit and restrict travel. And of course that meant that last year, we saw a brief reduction in the numbers of people moving, for instance, the United States, moving across the Mediterranean to Europe. But as mobility opportunities have increased again, and governments have lifted those restrictions, so we see a spike in those numbers. So for instance, we've seen in the last couple of months, record numbers of apprehensions at the US border of mainly asylum seekers trying to move upwards from Central America via Mexico into the United States. The question really is what will COVID-19 mean going forwards? Well, part of the legacy of COVID-19 and the immediate impact has been health related. But the longer term legacy is going to be the economic consequences. We can predict that on some level, there's likely to be a significant global recession. And we've always seen in the past that at times of global recession, for instance, the 2008 financial crisis, in poor regions of the world, recession, severe economic shocks often exacerbate the drivers of displacement. Authoritarian governments are more likely to resurface um, conflicts are likely to be exacerbated, and human rights violations are likely to increase. That's a pattern we've seen with recessions and economic downturns globally in the past. So there's a real worry that um, the resulting economic consequences, for instance, wiping a generation of development um, away in sub-Saharan Africa, affecting the development trajectories of, of countries like Brazil and across Latin America, may have really severe consequences in exacerbating forced displacement. But don't hold for 50% of the world's refugees come from Syria, South Sudan, and Afghanistan, countries uh, where there's a constant war. It is astonishing how geographically concentrated this challenge is. So that um, well over half of the world's refugees come from just five countries, countries like Syria, Afghanistan, Myanmar, countries with either really tyrannical regimes or protracted long-term conflicts. And if we could resolve the root causes, if we were better at addressing the root causes of state fragility, if we were better at post-conflict reconstruction and peace building, then the number of refugees would be dramatically reduced. So partly the refugee issue is a symptom of our failure, our collective global failure, to address the root causes of war and uh, authoritarian governance. Doesn't the rise in populist nationalism that leads countries to turn away migrants and asylum seekers compound the problem? Yes, we, we've got a real challenge. And there's a bit of a paradox because in the book, I characterize this as us living in an age of displacement. On the one hand, we see rising numbers and rising needs. But on the other hand, we see declining political will to admit asylum seekers, to allow refugees to access the territory they need to be safe. And we've seen that particularly um, in the aftermath of the so-called European refugee crisis in 2015 and 16. It unleashed the, the so-called Brexit vote where 
Britain wanted to leave the European Union. It led to the rise of populist nationalist parties in Europe, the Alternativa for Deutschland, getting a growing share of the vote in Germany. Um, leaders like Marine Le Pen's Front National doing well in presidential elections around that time. And in the US, we obviously saw the, the election of the Trump administration around the same time in 2016, particularly building on anti-immigration narratives and drawing upon what was happening on the other side of the Europe, Europe the other side of the world in Europe, um, to say we need to have um, stronger immigration controls. But that populist nationalist backlash is not unique to the rich world. I think that's what surprises some people, that it's, it's not only a phenomenon of, of Europe and North America, but we've seen backlash against large numbers of, of migrants and refugees, even in some of the poorest countries in the world. Kenya recently threatened to close down its refugee camps um, as a result of the security implications of hosting large numbers of, of Somali refugees. Lebanon, which per capita hosts more refugees than any country in the world, their prime minister has said, we face chaos amidst the economic consequences of COVID-19. So there's a real worry that not only do we have rising numbers and rising needs, but that the politics is really against more progressive refugee policies. The Washington Post fact checkers responded to claims by former President Trump by saying, quote, there's no evidence that refugees, many of them women and children, endanger national security. Trump often makes false claims associating immigrants with crime. Um, does that happen in other countries as well? Yeah, there's a real challenge that, that political narratives and even media narratives tend to misrepresent the refugee issue. We often don't have a very fact-based or evidence-based discussion. And so, I mean, one of the goals of my book is really to say, we need a more evidence-based debate. It's really important that we have research and facts and fact-checking and hold our politicians accountable for what they say that is inaccurate or misleading. Now, this is such a politicized issue. And in the US, for instance, immigration became one of the most salient electoral issues. Um, what do I mean by that? I mean that in the presidential elections in 2012, 2016, 2020, immigration was far more important than it had been in the past. It was a major and important issue, particularly in 2012 and 2016. And what that does is it means that politicians often use immigration as a scapegoat issue. They'll seek to blame immigrants for other um, social challenges around the changing nature of the global economy, around the, um, the decline of labor-intensive manufacturing, um, whether it's in the north of England in my country or in the Rust Belt in the United States, and try to make people think that their grievances in their day-to-day -day life are better explained by immigration. And what we often see is that opinions about immigration, attitudes about immigration, are often informed by people's own um, filter bubbles, their own echo chambers online, the narratives they encounter through social media, on Facebook that are often sponsored by particular interest groups. And so people are not exposed to either evidence or positions and views and attitudes that may be different from their own. And that's very dangerous in this area. President Biden raised the refugee cap to 62,500 this year, but experts 
Don't experts say that it's unlikely that the U.S. will admit that number, largely due to training and staffing refugee resettlement agencies in the United States? Yeah, so the, the Biden-Harris administration is at a very interesting phase in designing the, the next phase of the U.S. national refugee policy, if you like. And there have been immediate steps taken. So Trump reduced the resettlement quota to around 10,000. But Trump didn't just reduce the numbers. He absolutely undermined the institutions, the infrastructure that allows the U.S. to resettle people. So while the current administration has said 62,500 as the resettlement cap for the rest of the year, it's absolutely true that it's going to be very difficult to fulfill that quota because there's going to have to be new hiring. There's going to have to be a rebuilding and a reconstruction of all of the institutions, all of the partnerships with NGOs across America that help resettled refugees, integrate, get access to housing, get access to employment, uh, and integrate in all the towns and cities and neighborhoods that they contribute to across America. And so while it's been announced that there's an aspiration to, again, increase that number potentially to above 100,000 uh, in 2022, there's reason to believe it, it's going to require um, a reconstruction of all of the infrastructure, all of the capacity uh, amongst nonprofits, uh, within civil society, and across government to allow that to happen. And ironically, despite the creation of the Juneteenth national holiday, the New York Times reports that black immigrants are disproportionately detained, receive higher bond costs, and say that they face racist treatment within detention centers. This is absolutely an issue of race. Uh, and I think the way particular groups of refugees, um, asylees, are treated not just in the United States, but in rich countries around the world, is shaped by race. And I, I find it very believable and very plausible that the treatment that people receive, whether um, as uh, refugees arriving from Africa or even from across Latin America, is affected through the way they're viewed racially. Um, we've got to step back from that as a society. We've got to recognize that refugees are not coming because they choose to. They're coming because they have to. They are forced to flee. They flee really difficult and dangerous circumstances. That's First, when my grandparents came here. Your, your grandparents came from what background? Well, they came from Germany and Eastern Europe. Yeah, so they came as refugees fleeing yes, after World, communism. Before World uh, War II, but because of uh, the discrimination in, in their countries. Yeah, exactly that. And I think people don't make that connection. Um, and that's not just in America. It's also in my country, in Britain. People don't make the connection between the absolute solidarity they felt towards people fleeing the Holocaust, the people, the solidarity they felt towards um, Jewish refugees in the Second World War, or the solidarity that was absolutely bipartisan um, amongst Democrats, Republicans, towards people fleeing communism. The, the, the solidarity that we saw during that period that was very much bipartisan, that was a source of unity across party politics, um, was in a way much more straightforward because it was never an issue of race. It was predominantly about admitting and integrating white refugees. But what we have to do is say, it doesn't matter what race, what ethnicity, what nationality refugees are from. We have obligations to them that are fundamental obligations of humanity 
to protect people who are fleeing situations that are not unlike those that we remember from history um, of communism, of totalitarianism, of Nazism. They are fleeing regimes like uh, the regime in Venezuela, like the regime in Syria, that oppress fundamental human rights and require people to leave as a last resort. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Alexander Betts, whose latest book he's written quite a few, in fact. Uh, this one is called The Wealth of Refugees, How Displaced People Can Build Economies, published by Oxford University Press. And uh, I'm assuming that the title of your book, The Wealth of Refugees, is a nod to Adam Smith's book, The Wealth of Nations. Exactly right. It is. Um, Adam Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations in 1776. It's regarded as one of the founding treaties uh, of modern economics. Um, and I think one of the challenges is in the kind of intervening 250 years, economics has rarely paid attention to the people who fall outside the framework of the nation states, whether as refugees or exiles. And this book is partly trying to correct that and say refugees themselves have economic lives. They are producers, consumers, borrowers, lenders, entrepreneurs. They are founders often. They are the innovators, they are the investors, they engage in economic life. And for too often we've thought of refugees either as a threat or as passive victims in need of humanitarian aid, receiving food and shelter in refugee camps or coming on resettlement schemes. Well, actually, yes, many refugees do have vulnerabilities. Many do need our help and support, but they contribute. They can be seen as a benefit to our societies rather than a burden. And that applies whether they are in um, poor host countries around the world, where the majority of the world's refugees are, or whether they come to the United States with the right policies, the right integration opportunities, they can make contributions. And so in a way, what I'm trying to say is just as economics has thought about citizens in, for instance, the wealth of nations, so it needs to think about the economic lives of refugees and displaced people. Aren't the widening distributions of global power with rivalries between the United States, Russia, and China exacerbating refugee problems? You write, quote, this trend is unlikely to abate unless China and the United States build a shared vision for responding to fragile states. Uh, I'm not sure the United States and China are likely <laughs> to arrive at any shared visions in the near future. Yeah, this is a real challenge. So the, the modern refugee system was really built in the aftermath of the Second World War. Um, there's an international refugee treaty, the 1951 Convention on the Status of Refugees, um, and it defines who a refugee is and the rights to which refugees are entitled. And it was really created significantly with US leadership and with the backing of the allies in the Second World War to say never again. People who flee circumstances like the Holocaust, the early onset of the Cold War, absolutely have to unconditionally receive access to refugee protection. And that commitment endured through much of the um, period of the Cold War in the 1990s and early 2000s, when the US was really the global superpower. And it could underwrite refugee assistance around the world, support the United Nations system and the UN Refugee Agency, the UNHCR, to deliver protection um, in camps, in cities, across the globe. Now, as we see that changing, as we see the rise of multipolarity, the rise of China and, and the so-called BRICS, India, Russia, um, Brazil, um, we see a contestation of global power. 
And countries like China are much less concerned with refugee rights. They're much less concerned with upholding those global institutions. They, it's not that they've tried to undermine them. They just haven't shown very much interest. China doesn't offer huge amounts of sanctuary to refugees. It doesn't particularly resettle refugees. It doesn't contribute much aid to the refugee system. And so this shift in global power is going to change the nature of the, the liberal institutions that uphold the refugee system through the United Nations. But what it's also going to do is potentially exacerbate sources of conflict. We already see the way in which some of the key um, countries that are the source of refugees, countries like Syria and Venezuela, the conflicts and regimes in those countries have had very important backing by Russia, for instance. The Assad regime in Syria has a very strong relationship with Russia. Similarly, uh, the Maduro regime in Venezuela, very strong support from the Russian government. So that rivalry between the US and Russia um, underlies some of the reasons why the US, the UN and the wider world have struggled so much to address the root causes of displacement in those types of countries. And alongside that, it's not that China has, has been on one side or the other, but China has been much more withdrawn, has taken a, an approach of kind of non-intervention in those countries and hasn't wanted to interfere. And in that context, the, the UN Security Council, um, the apparatus of peace and security in the world have really let us all down and really failed refugees and displaced populations in addressing those conflicts. And these dynamics are going to endure for the next half century at least. This is a world where the US and China are going to have to coexist, where Russia will not have the same status as the US and China, but will be a spoiler in world politics, where we will see these very localized conflicts, almost equivalent to the kind of proxy wars we saw often in the Cold War context, where Soviet meddling uh, would exacerbate conflict in certain regions and the superpowers would take different sides. So it's a very worrying moment for peace and security. And the consequence for that is that people end up having to flee countries like Venezuela and Syria. And you've served as an advisor to a range of governments, including the government of Colombia, uh, about its Venezuelan refugee crisis. Uh, what do you tell these countries? So I try to write books and, and produce research that is um, accessible to policymakers and the general public that, that people can read. So, so this is a book that is really trying to map out how governments um, can support refugees to, to build economies, how rather than seeing them as a long-term humanitarian burden, they can be contributors to the national economy. And that not only can refugees benefit, but so too can citizens of those receiving countries. And so while much of my research has been in Africa, I take the lessons of that research to other countries that host huge numbers of refugees. Uh, I've worked with the government of Jordan, uh, a host to um, nearly a million Syrian refugees. I've worked with the government of Colombia that today hosts nearly 1.5 million um, Venezuelan refugees. Now the work with the government of Colombia was particularly interesting. Um, I was supported by US government through USAID to go and uh, do some work there and invited by the presidency of, of the government of Colombia. And obviously my regional knowledge focuses much more on Africa and to some extent Europe. So I had the chance to go with the government and visit the border regions of the country where 
every day, literally thousands of Venezuelans uh, were crossing the Simon Bolivar Bridge, uh, coming hungry, destitute, in search of food that they could either take back across the border or searching for the opportunity to remain in Colombia or move onwards to another neighboring country like Peru or Ecuador. So I had the chance to meet um, uh, Venezuelans coming across the border. I had a chance to visit um, shelters, food kitchens, to speak to Venezuelan organizations in Colombia, to meet different branches of the government, to speak with the embassies, and try to brainstorm a plan where countries like the government of Colombia can say, okay, we are going to be in a position where we have to host Venezuelans. It's not possible for us to say to these people, you must return to Maduro's Venezuela. But in that context, how could Colombia turn this into an asset rather than a cost? How could it develop policies that encourage um, other governments around the world to contribute to development programs? Uh, how could it encourage businesses to invest that create jobs for both refugees and citizens alongside one another? How could it get a boost to its entrepreneurship sector um, and create small businesses um, for both the citizens and refugees? How could it boost its health um, sector, its educational sector, under so much stress um, from receiving such large numbers of Venezuelans? So my first, my first thing to do when I arrive in a country like uh, Colombia is to learn to go and visit the cities, go and visit the border regions, see how it's different and unique. But the second thing I was able to do was brainstorm some practical solutions. But in this country uh, and in, in Britain before Brexit, uh, there was strong reliance on immigrants to come and do the, the, the jobs that nobody else wanted to do, to work in, in farms or in factories. And yet uh, we have all these people who are, are furious. So they uh, have this very inhumane response to people who um, are helping them and often uh, escaping a humanitarian crisis. The United States is a nation of immigrants um, across generation. Immigrants have, have going made... all the way back to the native Native Americans because they came from Siberia. Absolutely, across the land bridge, all the oh. way through America's history, right the way back to the very start. The U.S. has been built by the initiative, the creativity, uh, the entrepreneurship of immigrants. Um, from the Americas and from around the world. Um, all the way back to the 19th century, um, migrants were coming from Europe, whether it was from Italy or from Ireland or from Germany. Um, and that's been the case throughout American history. It's also the case for refugees. So it may take sometimes a generation for refugees to be able to access education, to integrate, to make a contribution. But, we see, but we've always had discriminatory immigration policies as well. In yeah, fact, it wasn't until, until the 1960s that Asians could come here without a real problem. And, and that's exactly right. And, and there have been backlashes. So it's not new that there's discriminatory law. So we saw, for instance, in the Great Depression, a whole series of acts being passed by the US government to restrict immigration. We see moments when immigration is contested in politics, where it becomes debatable how much immigration is viable. But these two narratives coexist, one which tells us that the, the founders and CEOs of 
of just about every large company in the United States uh, are first or second generation immigrants versus this, this hostility. And what's very interesting about the hostility when you look at attitudes to immigration is it's predominantly not the people who live in regions and states and districts with large numbers of immigrants that are hostile to immigrants. It's often those who, who don't live close to immigrants, who don't really interact with or have contact with immigrants that have those most, the most, most negative attitudes. Some of the areas with the highest levels of immigration, New York, California, have the most positive attitudes to immigration. When we look at voting districts, for instance, in the 2016 presidential election, we see that actually the most liberal voting districts voting for the Democrats were often those with the highest numbers of immigrants. And those voting uh, for the Trump administration were actually in areas where, yes, they may have cared about immigration, but they didn't have much experience of interacting with immigrants. So I think a lot of the hostility comes from um, the media, uh, the absence of political leadership, from stereotypes, rather than individuals' own personal experiences. You're listening to Leonard Lopin at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Look how far I come. Immigrants, we get the job done. It's a hard line when you're an import, baby boy, it's hard times. When you ain't sent for braces, feed the belly of the beast with they pitchforks. Rich chores done by the people that get ignored. Uh, ya se armó, ya se despertaron, it's a whole of We're back with uh, my guest, Alexander Betts. Uh, his latest book, The Wealth of Refugees, How Displaced People Can Build Economies. He's a professor of forced migration and international affairs, associate head of the social science division at Oxford University, and the William Golding, a William Golding Senior Fellow in Politics at Oxford's Brasenos College. Um, his book is published by Oxford University Press. And didn't you set up the Refugee Economies Program at Oxford? Yeah, beginning with um, a pilot study in Uganda. Why, why Uganda? Yeah, well, we started studying the economic lives of refugees because it was a real gap. People thought about refugees not as economic contributors, but as, as humanitarian victims. And people have asked, well, why did you start your work in Uganda? And it might seem for, for US listeners a little obscure to go to this relatively small African country. But Uganda hosts 1.5 million refugees. So um, put that in context, the US over the last 50 years has taken about 3 million refugees in that entire 50-year period. So 1.5 million for a small country like Uganda is a very large number of people. But what Uganda's done is actually quite interesting. It's adopted quite a different approach to refugees compared to its neighbours. It allows refugees to work it allows them to move freely and choose where they live, where its neighbors, for instance, like Kenya, Tanzania, insist that refugees stay in camps. They won't let them work. They have to stay in camps and receive international aid indefinitely for five years, 10 years, 15 years. Uganda, virtually since independence in 1962, has said, we will let refugees work. And in rural areas, it actually gives them plots of land in agricultural settlements so they can cultivate their own crops and not be dependent, but actually become self-reliant, grow their own crops and subsist on those crops and sell any surplus. Now, it hasn't been a perfect policy, but what I wanted to do with my team was collect data, collect human stories and show what difference it makes. What difference does it make when refugees are given 
basic freedoms like the right to work and freedom of movement. We're able to show through our research that not only are refugees better off, um, these policies are associated with higher incomes, greater mobility, more sustainable sources of employment, but it also benefits the host community. Ugandan citizens were benefiting from refugees being able to work, being able to um, consume, produce, set up businesses that in turn employed uh, citizens of the Ugandan society. Now, why uh, hasn't that been a role model for other countries nearby? Is it a matter of the, the political system, whether the, the government is authoritarian or not? For a long time, people weren't really recognizing the Ugandan model. Um, but it is, of course, important that we recognize, well, what's the politics that's led to this? Why is it that Uganda has, has felt able to give um, such significant rights to refugees? And part of it is a bit complicated and messy that, that Uganda is not a perfect democracy. Uganda has what it calls a no-party democracy. Um, mm -hmm. In other words, there's really only one political party and it has um, significant levels of what political scientists call semi-authoritarianism. And that's allowed it to say, okay, we know that if we give refugees rights, citizens won't be able to vote against us, um, but we will be able to get development aid, uh, assistance from donors around the world, from the United Nations, and reallocate some of that money, not just to help the refugees, but also to help our own citizens. And so partly, we have to be frank, this is not just uh, an altruistic concern with refugee protection. Uganda's response has also been um, because the country has benefited, uh, politicians and elites have seen benefits from the resources it's brought, the legitimacy it's conferred on their governments, and the money it's allowed them in some cases to relocate to their political allies across the country, including in refugee hosting regions where they've needed to build um, alliances with potential rivals in border locations. So one of the striking things about Uganda's history in this area is one of the architects of this seemingly progressive policy is um, Idi Amin. So Idi Amin mm -hmm. in the 1970s is known for his tyrannical policies and his oppression of human rights. And yet he was one of the people who built this model that, that today we celebrate. So it's not that the model is bad. It's a very good model. But we've got to be honest about the politics that sometimes gives rise to these, these progressive models. And you focus on three countries in East Africa, Uganda, but also Ethiopia and Kenya. And each has a different approach. Um, now, in Kenya, there are the old Kakuma camps for refugees and the new uh, Kalobe'e camps. Uh, isn't it a takeaway from these refugee camps that it's difficult to design a new settlement that fosters self-reliance? Yeah, there are a couple of takeaways. So Kenya, unlike Uganda, is not known for its progressive refugee policies. It tends to insist that refugees stay in camps and it denies them the right to work. But there's one region of Kenya, a country that hosts nearly half a million refugees, which has taken a different approach. And it's way up in the northwest of the country in a really remote area called Takana County. It borders conflict-afflicted South Sudan. And the governor of that region, a guy called Jos Fatnanok, said, we in this region have two resources. We have oil and refugees. And he recognized that refugees could be an asset, that, that if refugees were given opportunities, that could bring money to this remote community 
that international development agencies might provide development assistance, that businesses might invest in creating jobs, and that could benefit the local community and citizens. And so they embarked on creating a new settlement alongside um, four very old so-called Kakuma camps where 180,000 refugees live. They created a new form of settlement called the Calabaye Settlement. And the Calabaye Settlement is really interesting. It was a model intended to be somewhere where both refugees and citizens could live alongside one another, where markets could flourish, and where rather than receiving just food aid, refugees could get cash assistance that would gradually be phased out as businesses emerged, as refugees and citizens built, built shops and bought from one another and exchanged with one another. Now, we've shown in our work, and I show in the book, that some of this has been limited in success, that one of the problems has been that it's continued to circulate a relatively limited amount of aid money around the economy. And it really reveals that if we want refugees to be self-reliant in these remote border regions, we have to shift from just looking at the microeconomic level to the macroeconomic level to really build much larger economies, to build the infrastructure, roads, electricity, uh, access to water, to try to get foreign direct investment from big companies that, that can create jobs and recognize that they can build upon localized comparative advantage. And that really is the challenge. If 86% of the world's refugees are in these low and middle income countries, not in Europe, not in North America, but in host countries like Kenya, how is it that we can build the border regions that have historically been neglected, but now host hundreds of thousands of refugees in ways that make the lives and livelihoods of refugees sustainable, but also offer something in return for the national government and the regional governments. And, and that in a way is, is the mixed success of the story we see in that region of Kenya. Well, how do people survive in the, uh, the older approach, the, the Kakuma camps for refugees? Do they just it's, simply it's, rely on, on handouts from uh, other countries? Yeah, there's massive dependency. So refugee camps around the world um, make sense for the emergency phase. If you imagine people moving across the border, they're, they're fleeing violence, they're often desperate, they often arrive with very little uh, other than the clothes on their back. You need to give them access to shelter, you need to give them food and, and basic medical care. And the camp is designed for that. The problem is camps often endure for five years, 10 years, uh, a decade, even longer. Um, and that situation, which is known often as protracted refugee situations, is a tragedy. Because if refugees don't have the right to work, if access to education, including secondary or tertiary education, is limited, then we're effectively warehousing people in camps. They can't go home because the war's ongoing. They can't move onwards because resettlement is limited and there's immigration control. And so they get trapped in those camps. Now, the four Kakuma camps are a reflection of that old aid model, where the general expectation of the national government is that people shouldn't work, they shouldn't get jobs, they should wait until they could go home. Now, of course, the conflict in Somalia has been ongoing since 1991. The conflict in South Sudan has been um, on and off for decades. But this so those is people don't want to return. Exactly. And lots of people have good reason not to want to return. Not only do they often establish ties in the countries that host them, like Kenya, but they've faced real tangible risks returning. 
And so this warehousing in camps is something that often leads to um, real challenges, um, people lacking hope, people facing um, real mental health challenges, not having a sense that they can either move forwards with their lives by relocating somewhere else or go back home and rebuild the lives that they, they previously lived. So it's that sense of being trapped in camps where we have to rethink that model. Encampment um, for many years at a time is something that, that simply doesn't work. It's, it's not a way to, to meet people's most basic needs. A third approach is the private sector funded Doloado camps in Ethiopia. Uh, isn't there evidence that the private sector can help build refugee economies, but also that there are limitations? Yeah. So one of the cases we look at is five refugee camps in the south of Ethiopia called the Doloado camps. And they're alongside the border with Somalia. So Somalia, uh, a very challenging country, ongoing conflict, insecurity, terrorism. Now, just over a decade ago, um, hundreds of thousands of Somali refugees crossed the border, and many of them have settled in what's called the Somali region of Ethiopia. And Doloado has gradually established five refugee camps. Now, what's really unique here is that a private foundation, the IKEA Foundation, um, the philanthropic arm of the furniture company, has invested over 100 million US dollars in those camps. That's the largest private sector investment in any refugee situation ever in history. And the opportunity has been there to learn about whether that model can work, what it can do. And a lot of its early investment was in the infrastructure, basic life-saving response. But then what it started to do was say, we've got to create jobs. We've got to create job opportunities so people can support themselves. And it created something called cooperatives, which are basically group-based income-generating activities where refugees and the host community would have access to 50% of the jobs each, a 50-50 split between refugees and citizens. And they created these cooperatives in areas like agriculture, building irrigation to allow shared farming activities to grow tomatoes, watermelons, maize. Um, they also developed um, uh, livestock projects um, for developing um, livestock and animals, for trading meat, for trading milk, uh, having shared slaughterhouses, in, in hygienic conditions. Um, and these cooperative groups have not only improved the attitudes that host communities have towards refugees and vice versa, the social cohesion between those groups, but measurably increased income and economic outcomes for those communities. So it shows that business can play a role, that this isn't just about government, it's not just about handouts, it's about the role that business and the private sector can play in creating opportunities and the role that refugees can play in supporting themselves and their communities if they're given that chance to set something up that sustains them. Again, as you highlight, Leonard, it hasn't been perfect by, mm. by any stretch of the imagination. This is a really challenging remote region where many people remain unemployed. Uh, many people have very low incomes that are even below the poverty level. Um, there's a long way to go, but it really shows that the private sector can make a difference. Alexander Betts is my guest today on London Pit at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. His latest book, The Wealth of Refugees, How Displaced People Can Build Economies, published by Oxford University Press. 
What can the Biden administration learn from African countries about refugee policy? This is a great moment of opportunity um, for U.S. policy on refugees. There's a real recognition that the, the, the Trump administration's policies were just too strict, too draconian, that building border walls wasn't going to work, insisting that people waited in Mexico for asylum claims wasn't going to work, and that caging children was just absolutely horrific. And the Biden-Harris administration are, are bravely taking this on. They've started to increase commitments to resettlement. They've said that asylum claims can be assessed in the US. They've committed $4 billion to addressing the root causes of irregular migration uh, in Central America and across Latin America. Um, but I think as they, as they build that policy framework, as they work towards a unifying national refugee policy, these three countries that I look at offer real lessons, both for what the US uh, can do on US soil and what it does abroad to support countries like Mexico and the Central American economies. Um, Did Vice President Harris bring any of those ideas with her when she visited uh, the, the countries in Central America? Yeah, so there have been ongoing conversations that the Vice President has had, in, including um, ideas and support from the United Nations Refugee Agency to really explore, for instance, the way in which Mexico can sustainably protect its growing numbers of, of refugees from Central America the way in which uh, the US can begin to support greater capacity and, and job creation, um, not just for refugees, but also people who might consider migrating for a variety of reasons, whether as forced migrants or voluntary migrants from the Northern Triangle countries. So the ideas are still under development. Um, there are still some questions being asked about the US's policies in Mexico and Central America. But I think there's a real sense that this isn't just about the U.S. border. It has to be now about we, building anchors closer to refugees, uh, countries of origin. We don't have a lot of time left, but I want to address the four ways you say we can transform the way that we see and treat refugees. Uh, so let's go through them quickly. Well, the first one, of course, is enable, creating enabling environments. And we've already discussed that in terms of Uganda. Uh, the second is economic zones, the, the third is matching markets, and the fourth is humanitarian visas. You want to uh, explain those three as quickly as possible? Yeah, these go back to the TED talk that I gave, uh, I think, in 2016. And really what they have in common is an attempt to recognize that refugees can be contributors. So the matching markets is the idea that actually if we're going to resettle refugees, let's take account of what skills they bring, what assets they bring, and how those can match with, say, the communities they're being integrated in. There's no point in taking refugees who have um, an agricultural background and, and putting them in the middle of a big city. There's no point in taking refugees who, who have the potential to contribute as doctors, for instance, and putting them in a place where there's no hospital. So can we think about the the labor market profile of a receiving area and match that with the contributions that can be made by refugees. Another idea that I was exploring at the time was really how we unlock the, the right to work for refugees in other parts of the world. And one of the ideas we developed in Jordan uh, in 2015, 2016, um, was to take the country's pre-existing economic zones and say, hang on, 
If, for instance, the European Union provided Jordan with trade concessions for manufacturing that takes place in those areas, if the World Bank provided concessionary finance, would Jordan allow refugees to work alongside Jordanian citizens? And what that model did was create a deal that shifted the Jordanian position to allow Syrian refugees the formal right to work for the very first time. Um, it hasn't been perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but it opened up that right to work. And the argument isn't that special economic zones should be used everywhere. It's context specific what's going to work to unlock the right and access to meaningful works and jobs for refugees. The key message is jobs and employment are a crucial part of refugees' sense of well-being and integration. The final one I mentioned was about- Yes, humanitarian visas. Doesn't it cost a thousand euros to be smuggled from Turkey to the Greek islands, but only 200 euros to take a budget flight from Bodrum in southern Turkey? This was something I discussed in a New York Times opinion piece where I was highlighting that everybody loses from the amount of money that people have to spend to to be smuggled across borders, Hmm. that you spend literally thousands of dollars going with illegal smuggling networks and that money goes into a crime network. Whereas actually, if we could give people access to humanitarian visas that that allow them to travel those distances on a commercial flight legally, having access to those visas um, much closer to home, to go to an embassy, to go to a consulate, to have a stamp in their passport, actually that's much better for everyone. It's safer. People don't lose their lives on dangerous journeys. Um, We don't build profits for criminal and smuggling networks. We ensure that there aren't challenges concentrated at the border. But what it relies is nation states creating fair and just refugee policies and making the right to seek asylum something that can be assessed much closer to the regions and the countries that refugees come from. It's about making resettlement better. It's about making safe passage available to those who really need it. The uh, many politicians argue that uh, uh, if we invest in improving the situation for refugees, we impose a cost on our country and our people. But during the pandemic crisis, we just watching television, it was quite clear that many of the doctors and nurses who were uh, working on the front lines were immigrants. Uh, so it's a matter of just picking and choosing. We only want the, the, uh, the cream of the crop. It's definitely not a matter of picking and choosing. We've got to recognize that first and foremost, refugees are a humanitarian obligation. They are refugees because they have to flee. And our duty to them is because we have a common shared sense of humanity that people in need need to be protected by all countries around the world. However, that's not inconsistent with recognizing that refugees have contributions to make and where they have skills, talents, and aspirations. If we support and nurture them, they can contribute to our society. And so Leonard, the example you point to is a really important one that in the COVID-19 pandemic, Societies need doctors, they need nurses, and many refugees around the world are health workers. They can make contributions and we can offer um, potentially access to labor migration visas to refugees who might be in camps around the world to come to our societies and contribute to our healthcare, whether it's private healthcare or public healthcare systems. The UK, for instance, is gradually piloting a system like this where it's identifying Uh, refugee nurses 
who are in camps and cities in the Middle East and giving them the right to come on visas to the United Kingdom and be part of the National Health Service and, and make a contribution to the pandemic. Yeah. We have to leave it there, unfortunately. We've run out of time. But my great thanks to you, Alexander Betts, uh, uh, Oxford professor, uh, the book, The Wealth of Refugees, How Displaced People Can Build Economies, published by Oxford University Press. It's been uh, an eye-opening conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Leonard. And that brings us to the end of our show. Special thanks to Kate Guan Allison for preparing today's interview. If you're new to our program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And there are links to our over 500 past shows at our website, LeonardLopinAtLarge.com. If you'd like to send me a comment about something you've heard on the show or simply to say hello, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. WBAI continues to experience major financial difficulties due to the pandemic, so we're asking anyone who isn't already supporting the station to go online to give to WBAI.org or to call 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. Why not support the programming that you turn to to learn about the latest important books or documentaries and a wide range of important topics that you haven't heard discussed in detail anywhere else? Do it for us. Do it for WBAI. Do it for other listeners who aren't in a financial position to be able to support community radio. And one very helpful way to contribute is to become a sustaining member of the station at or what we call a BAI buddy. Whatever you, way you choose to support BAI, the important thing is that you take that first step and make a tax-deductible contribution of any amount by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org. Remember, we are dependent 100% on our audience support. And please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large from all of us on this show, Thank you. Well, we're off tomorrow, but I hope you can join us again for Wednesday's show when Gothamist reporter Ross Barkin will discuss his eye-opening new book, The Prince, Andrew Cuomo, Coronavirus, and the Fall of New York. We'll see you then.